Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts today. And I'm Karen, but unlike the other episodes, we don't have two or three hosts today. We have everyone. We have about eight hosts on the episode. So everyone say hi. Hi! And I'm Selena, a new host to Life Out Loud, excited for this 10th and last episode of the second season entitled Piecing It Together. And I'm Patricia, another host here to say, yes, it's true. Not only is this the last episode of the second season, but it's a special milestone. This episode contains our 50th story. Life Out Loud has 50 wonderful stories from young authors with diverse backgrounds under its belt. Thank you all for being with us on this journey. And I'm Mandy, back again. The good news doesn't stop with our 50th story. We want to officially announce that Life Out Loud has just been awarded a $5,000 CUNY Office of Academic Affairs grant to further develop experiential learning. We will use this money to share even more stories and make even more voices heard. Thank you to everyone who has helped make this possible, particularly Professor Kristen Madrazo for working tirelessly on the grant proposal. Life Out Loud has some many big things coming. Stay tuned as always. Here is a quote from the Association for Experiential Education about the highly competitive grant we received. Educational research indicates that high-impact practices that take ideas and concepts beyond the classroom can increase rates of student retention and student engagement and can be beneficial in shaping their long-term professional development as critical and creative thinkers. And to celebrate all of these things today, we are going to a special Moth Story Slam tonight. And I'm Samantha, you know me. In this special episode, we hear the stories of three young authors who in some way are working to piece something together, either for their own investigation or that of others. Let's get into it. Our first story is by seasoned author and production team member Karina Velez. Karina Velez wants to live in a world filled with innovative thinkers, books that come bundled with green tea, and a cure for procrastination. As an inspiring forensic psychologist currently studying at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, she plans to graduate this fall without spontaneously combusting, after which she will be attending Harvard University for her MA in clinical psychology. When she's not studying or writing feedback letters for her creative nonfiction class, you can find her hidden behind her camera, Bartholomew, organizing her next big adventure or drawing floor plans for tiny houses. Thank you, Rebecca. Let's take a listen to Karina's piece entitled Beretas Aquitas. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been a year since we last spoke because I told a lie that you could not forgive me for, a lie that has damaged our relationship beyond repair. I am not praying to my Heavenly Father. Instead, I'm recounting the time I wronged my biological father. In a way, I'm asking for penance. The remnants of winter's icy breath breaks against my bare hands. It's supposed to be spring break. Instead, my mother, stepfather Robert, and I are layered in our best winter tidewear. Their warm hands are wrapped in cashmere, 
shielded entirely from the world's most cunning spectators. Mine are bare and seek shelter under the pocket folds of my peacoat. Today, my parents are preparing to show me what my future could consist of if only I learned to formulate strategic game plans like them. They have recently been informed of my learning disabilities, an unfortunate development in their plan to leave me to my own devices as early as possible. At the age of 11, I am officially more responsibility than they had hoped. The fur on my mother's mink coat shimmers and dance as the wind makes another appearance. I examine how much she has grown into her role as a trophy wife. Her arms no longer display gifts from the parade of men she claimed to love before my stepfather. Those bruises have faded. Instead, today, she sports her newest token of affection, a Birkin bag. The cost? A mere $14,956.73. And her dignity. I know this exact cost because she repeats the price to me over and over again until my mathematically dyslexic brain cannot distort and in turn fail to notice the socioeconomic status that this bag grants her. This is the sum of her self-worth. My self-worth lies directly in my path. A massive iron-welded gate and its arc displays the Harvard seal. Veritas, it reads, truth. The estranged word acknowledges me the same way a former bullied classmate would, scowling at me with harbored resentment. Karina, my stepfather starts, while removing the glove from his right hand and gripping my left shoulder. Do you know why your mother and I have brought you here? Making eye contact, he kneels before me, balancing on one knee. We are equal height now. I do not answer. Instead, I focus on the seriousness inhabiting his aquamarine eyes. I have seen this look before from the sidelines, but never up close. It is the look that my stepfather, as a hockey coach, gives his leading scorer just before ordering that the puck glide past every obstacle and be swallowed whole by the net. It is the look that he gives to someone he believes in, to someone who belongs on his team. Great people who have done amazing things have gone to this school, he says. Immediately, I bring my eyes down to my feet, wondering if they could ever lead me to greatness. Nothing is stopping you from going here and doing great things, if that's what you want to do. Just because you have dyscalculia doesn't mean you cannot do great things. You, Karina, are worthy of great things. He hugs me with one arm and gives me a good pat on the back and we all continue to walk around the campus. His words gradually raise the embers from the pile of ashes that was my self-esteem, restoring hope in more than just myself, a future. I try to envision a variation of my older self going here, taking classes, classes that I would choose, classes with no math. I start to think that maybe I am smart enough to go here, to go where truth is ivy-lined beauty on campus where I could make my parents proud of me, all of my parents. But just as we approach the library, and I am imagining myself running up all the steps to fill my bag with books that have been held and read by great minds, I see the university insignia. It is strategically placed just above the library doors, reminding everyone that this is a place of veritas, of truth.
Twelve months earlier, I am seated in my Catholic school prep academy. Peering out across my fifth grade classroom, fighting to stay awake in Latin class. As I copy Veritas Equitas from the chalkboard into my notebook, I think about how stupid it is that we are all required to take Latin class instead of Spanish. No one even speaks Latin, I mumble, with an earshot of my best friend Melissa, so that she can hear. She kicks my chair and shoots a glare my way. I turn my head to look out the window and see two police officers walking into our preparatory. In an instance, my eyes become overwhelmingly heavy and begin to close. I'm only allotted a full exhale before I hear Sister Ruth say my name. You're wanted in the office by the headmistress, she states, in her deep, monotone, matter-of-factly voice. I attempt to recall the nearly endless list of things that I could have done that would justify being called into the headmistress's office. As I approach the door, I readjust the length of my red plaid skirt and pat down any wrinkles in my otherwise impeccable white collar shirt. Now I look too presentable, I think to myself. I knock twice and wait for her signature, proceed. Instead, she comes to the door herself. She greets me in a tone I'm unfamiliar with. It almost sounds kind. As she pulls back the door to politely ask me in, I see men in uniform seated in two of the three seats placed in front of her desk. Aside from my hands that have been hit with the case of the shakes, I am immobile as the headmistress asks me to be seated. Without speaking, I already know why they are here. They want to find out what happened in our gated community townhouse last night. They are investigating who beat on my mother and if my father has violated the restraining order. The men in blue can see exhaustion all over my face, and even then, I am silently shaking. I'm not afraid of them. Instead, I'm afraid of my stepfather and mother finding out that I was the one who called the police department last night as they wailed on each other. That's the real reason these uniformed men are here. Because a child made the phone call. One of the men asks me who beat my mother. I answer with silence. In response, he states, we spoke with your mother. She said it was your biological father. Is that true? Without breaking silence, I now know what my mother wants me to say. Shamefully, I nod and confirm. She would be proud of me, I tell myself, which seems more important than telling the truth. More important than telling the truth that my stepfather, the only person who seems to believe in me sometimes, is actually the one who beat her last night. More important than sparing the name of my real father. The headmistress dismisses me, and as I turn to leave, my sights are set on our prep school's insignia, Veritas Aquita. Personal honor and truth in actions and justice, regardless of the circumstances. Oh my goodness, Karina, the story is absolutely amazing. Once again, once again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. So throughout the piece, you speak like a child, but not the way most children speak. Your vocabulary is advanced. Your demeanor is different. You carry yourself like a tiny adult, exhausted by the world. Was that was this your way of projecting your current adulthood and adult mentally through the story? Or did these circumstances discussed in your piece force you into early growth? Was it a bit of both? 
If I had to evaluate that, um, I would have to say that it was a bit of both. I think that now as an adult, I can see how exhausted I was as a kid mm-hmm. and how tiring all of it was. Um, but, you know, I always had people growing up telling me, um, well, Karina, you're so mature for your age or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I'm 11 or 12 sitting in on adult conversations, having to take care of myself, essentially, because there was just a lot of stuff going on in my household. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess, yeah, I guess it was a little bit of both. <laughs> So your story is different from others in this episode in that in other stories, people are kind of investigating themselves and putting together themselves as people. And in this one, you're kind of lying in an investigation of a domestic violence situation and you're putting two and two together and weighing two and two about the situation and deciding at such a young age that the truth can't come out because your mom doesn't want it to. And you say, she would be proud of me, I tell myself which seems more important than telling the truth, more important than telling the truth about my stepfather, more important than sparing the name of my real father. So looking at this now, if you could go back, would you still decide that? Would you tell? I would probably tell the truth, <laughs> to be honest. Um, when this piece came about, um, we were sitting in our CNF class and our professor, our professor, <laughs> our <laughs> professor um, Mandrazo, she wrote on the board, uh, for one of our pieces to use a secret, something that we would never tell or something that we were never really discuss. And um, you could say that writing, I mean, we say it all the time, is cathartic in the sense that it allows you to reevaluate the things that you may not uh, have liked that you did as a kid. And even though, yeah, I was a kid and I was just doing what my parents would want me to do, um, I do regret it immensely having lied because maybe things could have been a little bit more different mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe things could have been better for everyone or you know they could have been inherently worse so it could go either way um but i've come to accept the fact that uh i can't change that i made that decision um but i can learn how to how to deal with it and grow from it as an adult it's <laughs> so. interesting because like we think about consequences when we're young a bit like when we're older and we think of like consequences where we're like teenagers and stuff but we don't think about like consequences when we're tiny yeah when we're like <laughs> little which is interesting to have consequences when you're that little like yeah. consequences that you look back on i'm like no one should have to make these kind of life altering decisions when they're that small yeah and that's mm-hmm. a real testament to like your situation at that time yeah, and I, I think that um, at least I try to put forth in this piece that, like, the complexity of mm-hmm. people. Um, and I can attest that my stepfather and my mother have really great qualities about them. Mm-hmm. But just like everyone else, they have really poor ones. And in that time in our life, um, I was very much aware of what the bad qualities were Mm. and what the consequences of me not going along with the story would have been when I got home. Mm. Either there would have been, you know, a bigger argument, a bigger fight, or something would have happened. But also, I was completely unaware when I made this decision uh, to say what I said, that they would end up arresting my father, my biological father, because of it. And um, they would do an investigation from there. So 
yeah, there's a lot. It's it's a lot to put on a little kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that a lot of people, especially people who've grown up in a lot of domestic or around a lot of domestic violence, are constantly walking on eggshells and constantly walking on um, glass, yeah. just trying not to bleed out on top of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, on that note, we at Life Out Loud want you to know that there is always resources for help in situations like these. If you have been or are in or know somebody who's in situations that involve domestic violence, we'd like to offer you resources in that area. One of the numbers that you could call is 800-799-SAFE, 800-799-7233. So that is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Thank you for bringing the the story to us and making domestic violence more aware to to our listeners and, and, and to us as well. Thank you for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) Our next piece of the night is by a new author to Life Out Loud, who has chosen to be anonymous. Really quickly, we want to note that if you or someone you know wants to submit a piece to the podcast, but don't necessarily want to have your name attached, you can always choose to be anonymous. Anonymous is a former John Jay College student who embraces the literary nonfiction genre and enjoys watching her favorite talk shows and learning about spirituality and meditation. Let's take a listen to Anonymous's piece entitled, My Other Half. I'll never be daddy's little girl. My father died when I was four months old. My mother says that he'd always wanted a daughter. Still, my mother says that he spanked me when I cried sometimes. My mother also says that my father was tidy and that he died from an ulcer to his groin. My mother's mother, Grandma Lucy, chuckled to me that when she bathed my father shortly before he died, she did not see much down there. I laughed along with her. I do not have one single baby picture, though my mother says that I was a bald-headed baby. Maybe we could have made it to the capital of Haiti, Port-au-Prince, for a picture one day if my father was well and if he could afford to with his chauffeur and sewing money. Maybe I might have a picture like my brothers do. They both are posing on a bed, my older brother leaning on a pillow. He wears a white shirt and pants with red and yellow lines that reads, Kid Boy and Medium Letters. One of my father's cousins, Uncle Dustin, said to me on a carpool one Sunday evening that my father was reserved and only spoke when he was spoken to. He also said that he was the first of his siblings to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. My mother told me that before they married, my father deemed her unfit for raising children because he thought she'd be too soft on them. My mother never thought she would have kids at all, not because she questioned her fertility, but because she did not plan motherhood from youth. She avoided hanging out with boys and always rushed home to care for her grandparents on her mother's side, cooking and cleaning the house in between doing her homework or devoir, as she called it. Neighbors worried that she would be the flower that wouldn't sprout in its season. But she did. She met him. My mother says that he was like a malbouik, a male donkey, like a lot of Haitian husbands seem to be. That's the main reason I don't want her to risk getting married again. I don't want some husband to shut her up before she even thinks about opening her mouth. The closest I have gotten to my father is in a dream. 
In it, I'm in Haiti and somewhere outside in daylight, but under some shade atop a dusty dirt ground surrounded by woody brown legs and leafy green fingers. I'm standing beside Lucy, my mother's mother, and holding her hand. My older brother Clark, by only one year, stands to the left of us. In the dream, a gaping hole erupts in the ground and a voice inside of it speaks to my brother, telling him to moi. join me, moi. over and over and over again. Grandma Lucy and I just stand back and watch as my brother does it. He jumps into the hole and is swallowed by it as it stitches itself back up, leaving the ground as flat as it was before. I have tried to interpret that dream, but I can't. Though every time my father's mother sees Clark, she says to him, me seeing you is like me seeing your father. My older brother Clark is not a grandma's boy, but my younger one is. Our little brother Stevenson is six years my junior and probably would not have been born if my father were still alive. After Stevenson's friend was killed, he lashed out and said to me, You don't know what I've been through. Me and my grandmother have been through a lot. He went on to say that when he and Grandma Lucy lived near a hospital in Haiti, a hurricane hit one day. It flooded their home with needles, human blood, and other medical equipment and human remains that escaped the nearby hospital. All of it rushed in with them still in it. When it rains in Haiti, it floods. My mother constantly reminds everyone that I kept begging her to bring Stevenson from Haiti to the United States and how I have said, are you going to let my little brother die in Haiti? My mother brings that up whenever Stevenson wants to say something fresh to me. It usually is, mind your fucking business. Angry, I once told him, your father doesn't care about you. If he did, he would call you. He would make an effort to see you. I have lived with an older male who has been a father figure for me for 13 years. I nicknamed him Peter from watching one too many episodes of Family Guy. I thought that Peter would be a name me and my brothers could call him without sounding disrespectful. We also call him Tête Poisson, or Fishhead, but only behind his back. I gave him that name because he not only loves to cook and eat fish, he also takes long showers. <sighs> if my real father were alive, I probably would have never met Peter would never amount to half the father that mine was anyway. Especially because if he is my friend today, there is no guarantee he will be tomorrow, depending on whether or not I forget to say good morning to him or whether or not I tell him that my mother is not the same kind of woman he is used to dealing with, that he has no right to speak to her in a condescending way, whether telling her to go learn how to cook, saying that she is not strict enough of a parent or constantly reminding her that she should deport Stevenson in the hopes that he will later be a good boy. Sometimes he accuses her of not paying her share of the rent and threatens to kick her out. When I got hit by a car in 2003, two days before Christmas break, Peter made sure to tell my mother that he brought me to the hospital because I was not feeling well, as he would many other times not thinking twice. After a follow-up appointment at a clinic, Peter held my hand firmly yet gently as I told him that the eye drops the doctor applied to my eyes gave me blurry vision and that the cold wind was making it worse. Peter also gave me my first shave, gliding his two belated blue Gillette razor under my furry armpits as he told me that a lady should always keep herself groomed. He also went to my 5th and 8th grade graduations. He took pictures of me and of my mother. 
he let other people take pictures of the three of us too. And none of the pictures were there warm embraces of him and I, no kisses. He has only said congratulations, which was fine. In one of my fifth grade graduation photos, I am between him and my mother, almost sunken between them and my toasty yellow satin graduation gown. He didn't go to my high school graduation, and after my mother begged me to apologize to him for being mean about it, he said that he was not scheduled to work that day. Sometimes, I wonder if my real father would have made it. When we got home that day, I took self-portraits with the flash facing me and the screen facing the medicine cabinet mirror. In them, my teeth are all out, flashed and framed inside my burgundy lip-glossed lips. My mother and Stevenson took additional pictures of me in my graduation dress and also in a satin, long, strappy turquoise gown I will never wear out. It looks like a prom dress, but I didn't go to prom. I wouldn't have danced anyway. Peter will probably not attend my college graduation, but that's okay. He will never be my father anyway. But he tried. Peter always thought he could simplify things by making me call him Papa, which came unnatural for me, though easy for him when he introduced me as his daughter. One of my father's sisters, Antina, once looked at me straight in the eyes and said, Your father is not dead. He is alive. I turned away and went into my room without saying a word. My mother says that this woman is like a piece of iron. Her hands are rough. My mother says that my hands are rough too. She says it's probably because I do a lot of writing and homework. I think it has more to do with avoiding lotion. I think I sound like my aunt too when I speak to her and her other siblings in a shirt condensed and sarcastic. I'm just as much of a hypocrite as you are kind of tone. It's my... I'll speak, but I'd rather do anything else but talk to you voice. It matches hers, the voice of my father's sister. My mother says that my father loved his family and would always act in their best interest. He never stood up to them, though. I have never stood up to them either. I do not want to say something that I will later regret, something my father would not want me to say. Distance works best for us. It seems that only on Chinese food menus can we find anything worth calling the happy family. When Aunt Tina's husband, Fred, was in the hospital for a few weeks, I daydreamed about going up to the hospital and lying on his bedside, turning over to one side, facing him and resting my head on his thick coiled chest hair, my thick legs next to his thin pretzel stick ones. I envisioned saying, I love you. I would hold his hand and kiss it. I would show him another side of me, not the mean side. As I thought about it, tears began to crawl down my face and my eyes felt warm and sleepy. I thought about telling him how handsome he is and what a good father he is to his three daughters. I thought about telling him how beautiful his dark skin is in case no one else has ever told him or in case he needed reminding. I would remind him of that one Saturday that he took the number two train with me for the first time, how he'd held my hand as well as those of his daughters and how he'd said that he disliked how peasy the back of his daughter's heads were. He'd said that whatever he did to help, it wasn't as nice as mine. No one had ever held my hand until that day. It felt unnatural, but I did not let go until he did. I never told him this, but I think that his daughter's tight curls look cute. My mother asked me to go visit him, but I never went. I told her, I'm not going. The next time I saw him was at church. I shook his hand as usual and did not ask how he was feeling. 
I figured he had to be well enough to come to church, but he wasn't. Perhaps he dragged himself anyway because he did not want to be at home, didn't want to remind himself how difficult he had it as a father of girls in their late teens and early 20s. Didn't want to be reminded how much his family is just like everyone else's. Didn't want to remind himself that he was getting older, that his kids were getting older, and that they didn't want to be tied to his wife's rules anymore. Maybe he didn't either. My favorite uncle, Uncle Wilson, lives in another state. What I like most about him is that he is my father's brother and that when I see him, he mutely acknowledges that my father is absent and that he must, if only for the time, try to fill that void. He never crosses the line, though. He never asks me to call him Papa. In the words of a Haitian drunk, he says to me, Bum kum pa bao, bum kum pa bao. Hit me, I won't hit you back. Hit me, I won't hit you back. There is only one single picture of my father in our small apartment. It is buried beneath a box of Christmas cards. It is a four by six portrait of him and my mother on their wedding day. My mother wears a long white gown covering her neck and arms, yet her neck and collarbone area still peep through the small spaces between the lace's delicate patterns. My mother's head is down as she signs the marriage certificate with her white-gloved hand. The pastor points to where she must sign. My father stands straight and tall behind her, next to the best man. His face is tightened and he looks straight into the camera. He is wearing a gray and white tuxedo with a black bow tie and white gloves. The best man holding my mother's bouquet of flowers is hinting at a smile. But my father is not. His eyes look a reddish burnt orange. This portrait has never hung on our walls, nor has it ever been framed. When I was younger, I wouldn't go near that photo. At one point, my mother was the only one who knew where it was. She still does. But I know now too. And even when I try not to look at it, when I try to resist finding it buried deep under other photographs and other letters, it seems that the dark, minty green walls in the background draw me to it, bait me into finding it, to coming closer to him. I look at that photograph now more than I used to, but I'd never dare stare at that picture before going to sleep, nor would I dream of being left alone with it, nor have I asked to visit his gravesite in Haiti. I have only passed by other people's tombs on car rides in New York City. I am afraid of the spirits there. I am also afraid of the spirit in the photo. Very afraid. But still, I would never tear it up. That photo is my only clear, consistent indication that my mother did not create me by herself. Wow. What a beautiful last line. What a beautiful piece altogether. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us tonight and for sharing your piece with us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it truly was amazing. <clears throat> that, oh, that last line. Yeah, that last line. Every was time, yeah, I read it. I was like, oh. So uh, you do a great job throughout the entire story using photographs as a subtle way to move the story along. You start with the photo of the baby picture you don't have. Then you move into the photos that you do have of your graduation, of your family, so on. The photos really help piece together the story from a number of different moments. 
So how did you decide to use the photographs to structure to tell your story? Um, I have realized that I like photography in general. So that has become like one of my hobbies. Mm-hmm. And um, it just worked in this. And pictures for me has been a gateway into memory. Mm-hmm. And it helps me piece my life together and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you can really tell <clears throat> that photos mean a lot for, for you in the story, especially um, to remember your past. Yeah, for sure. It's Yeah, it's always interesting what a memory, like what a photo can jog in a person's memory. Mm-hmm. It's like you cannot remember something from like a day and then you'll see a picture and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then this happened and this happened and, and this was the entire emotion. day is there. Yeah, and then the whole day is there. That's really interesting how that works. Um, and that was conveyed like really beautifully throughout this. You mentioned at the end of the piece that you've never gone to the the grave sites of your father because you'd worry about the spirits there. Do you think you might ever find yourself visiting there just to see? Or are you more or less concerned that you'll stay away? I think um, now I am finally at a point that I'm grieving my father mm-hmm. and at a point that I am actually want to go and see. But yeah, I feel like I'm paying my final respects by going there. So that is one thing I might do in the future. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's like, yeah, because throughout this piece, you go through kind of different father figures. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like a whole like series of vignettes of different dads or like dad like figures. Um, so to know that you're gonna go see like the actual person who you've kind of been searching for and all these other people is like, it, it yeah, it's it's very like emotional in a sense because it's. It's like that person that you've been looking for, you're going to go like find. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the spirits kind of thing, I grew up in a family that kind of had the same kind of beliefs with it. So when I was younger, I had my parents went to a funeral and they told me that I shouldn't come because the spirits are there and they'll give you nightmares and everything mm-hmm. like that. So I read that and I felt like a little bit of a connection there in terms of familiar matters. Actually, in my home. Yeah, like we do not like to really speak of the dead and we do not like to put pictures on walls. Mm. It has been like an unspoken uh, thing for us to not really talk about the past too much. Mm. Okay. So that's why his picture being hidden and being tucked away mm-hmm. under all those letters and other things is just, um, yeah, just, yeah. But now I'm understanding that I need that other piece of me was there. And the main reason that I see that he actually, he was, um, you know, he, he was alive. He had a life himself. And also I see myself through him. I'm like him in a lot of ways. So even though he's not here, I feel like I still know him a little bit. Like I have part of his personality. Like yeah. I'm shy, reserved, um, all of that. But Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're knowing him through yourself yeah which is really interesting it's like yeah you really are like his daughter like that is like yeah the person that like all these people say is this way the person that you know through other people and through their accounts of him you also know through yourself yes well thank you so much for joining us here today we really enjoyed your story thank you thank you so much and thank good you luck. good luck on your travels <laughs>
Our next story is not the traditional nonfiction piece, but it was voted by the nonfiction class for a place on our podcast. It actually mixes prose with poetry. This story, which crosses with spoken word, was written by Daniel Walker. Daniel Walker is a matriculating senior majoring in criminal justice at John Jay College. She's the president of Shut Up and Listen, which is a verbal expression club that gives individuals an opportunity to express themselves through poetry, singing, rap, and comedy. She loves all forms of spoken word and music. Danielle uses her gifts and talents as a vehicle to communicate with individuals of all ages and loves to perform her original pieces in front of large audiences. She believes a voice is a terrible thing to waste and encourages her peers to use it as a mechanism for change. After graduation, she aspires to become an entertainment lawyer to use her passion for verbal expression to represent her clients. Let's take a listen to Pigmentation. I remember walking down the street with dark blue skinny jeans and a graphic Spider-Man tee, and people just kept staring at me. Some were looks of disgust, while others were look of amazement. Amazement often led to questions and comments that made me question if my pigmentation was my advantage or disadvantage. Would it lead me to everything I wished to obtain in the future or weigh me down? These encounters would start with questions like, what are you mixed with? Or the jagged stab of, you're very pretty for a black girl. The confident smile and energetic tones came shortly after they released these sticks and stones, as if it was a compliment rather than a condescending attack on my being, as if I was beautiful despite my blackness, not because of it. The voice of reason? So you talk like a white girl, but you're very pretty for a black girl. Excuse me? What did you say? I'm giving him a chance to revoke his statement. He repeated what he said with a confident smile, as if I should be proud. This was the first of many remarks about my pigmentation. Robert and I were making our way to Central Park on a bright and humid August day. We had a long day in the office and decided to reward ourselves with fatty foods and a casual conversation. We grabbed Subway sandwiches and headed to one of the massive rocks scattered throughout the park. Children's laughter and horseshit filled the air around us. We found a shady spot near the park and ate our sandwiches in silence. Silence was often a sign of satisfaction to whatever you were eating. The silence was broken when he asked, So what are you mixed with? I slightly rolled my eyes. Oh no, here goes another one. I'm not mixed with anything. You have to be mixed with something. I'm pretty sure you are. I'm pretty sure I'm not. I say this ruthlessly. You know, trying not to let this conversation go any further. Whatever, he mumbled underneath his breath, shifting his weight from one side to another. Golden silence took up the space around us. So, um... Do you want to make out? He asked, leaning back on his elbows. I laughed nervously and answered, no, not really. Soon after, I began to ask him questions of substance. So, um, what do you like to do on your free time? Is there anything you're passionate about? What do you think about the upcoming elections? Before I could finish blurting out questions, he responded with, you know you're very strong-minded and you talk too much, right? At that point, I shook his hand and said, I'm going to start heading home and made my way towards the train station. In the distance, he yelled, wait! So we're still on for this Friday? I'll let you know, I yelled back. I knew I wouldn't. <sighs> this kind of stuff only got worse over the years. After a while, the politicians didn't even censor their views on our pigmentation. Some even classified us as people with nothing to lose. My speech wasn't always free. I had to fight for this right to be seen, and even though they see me, they don't really see me. With all this change, I still fought to remain in the past, present, and future. We see what it was intended to be. That race is still physically apparent, and just as dark as her skin, even the ones who got in so close saw her as less within. 
I remember asking my best friend if he ever dated a black girl, in which he responded with a quick, nah. His ignorance wouldn't allow it. He believed that if he married a black girl, it would ruin his bloodline, while his bloodline would only make hers better. It was as if pigmentation held all the cards in the deck. How your life would be, who you would marry, if you even deserve a right to reproduce or even speak on the matter. I started to become numb to it all. These feelings of inferiority, remorse, and even guilt. I stopped blaming myself for the things I couldn't change. Their mentality. The media projects the truth. It's like everybody wants to be black until it's time to be black. The representation of our skin isn't just a hashtag or a fashion trend. Our pigmentation is embedded with our culture, along with the stereotypes that are often televised in their favor. Through these eyes, I see. The generation that came before me, but the truth would not be televised because they would continue to tell us these lies that our questions and comments do matter and abortion is always the answer. And the only thing that's being abused is the environment, which is somewhat true. And the horrible order isn't poverty, but something that's being left out to dry. I mean, die along the side of the road, best expressed by boys to men. But we were never friends. We were foes with different meanings and understanding of what was right, but left we are going because the truth would be televised. And I will advise you to hide your sons and daughters because we're not buying this shit any longer because the shit that they told us is being received cycled along with these social issues that are starting to rise to the surface. And along, we will rise because this motherfucking truth will be televised in every social network and street corners. Bridges will be burned, but will that lead to some social order? Hell fucking yeah, because our emotions are not taken into consideration. And throughout the years, we continue to be patient. But patience was a virtue, and it left the day the bullet was shot from the gun into my brother's lung in which he gasped for air. And you know what the government said? There, there. It is all for a good cause. But they weren't like we were. It wasn't their people being shot in the street like dogs, barking orders in my face. But now we're defining the place. And as they continue to touch me in all these disgraceful places, but the truth you see will be televised. And you're going to have to shut up and listen. I said you're going to have to shut up and listen. Listen. Can you hear the cries of those being in an unjust system and the bodies dropping like the burdens of security and the souls being snatched out of the young and innocent? It's getting out of hand. This issue is slipping out of our hands like the breath was slipping out of his body. Heavy, my heart is filled with agony, hatred, and fear. This could have been my family's loss or yours. Blood in the street, but blood still remains on these leaves because the cycle keeps repeating itself, but this country wasn't built on self. And because of them, their truth will always be televised. Wow. What a very powerful piece. Thank you for sharing it with us tonight. I really, really love how you incorporated the poetry with the story that you're trying to tell and managed to make it all weave and interconnect in a way that made such a beautiful piece. So I wanted to ask, so since pigmentation features both poetry and prose, each intertwining so as a guide to understand the poetry and vice versa, how did you decide which parts were better said in prose or poetry? Well, I actually wrote the poem first and I kind of incorporated throughout the piece so um, I wrote the poem and then from the poem I, it came paragraphs of what I was talking about in, in the poem at least so basically I wrote the poem first and then it came with paragraphs of fiction and it or sorry nonfiction and experience that I went through the prose section of the, the prose sections of the piece is um, ex explanations of pieces of the poetry okay that's actually really cool. I would not have thought that you wrote them at separate times. So your line that says, just as dark as her skin, 
even the ones who gotten so close saw her as less within um it gave me goose pimples um you go on to expound on that line by talking about how your best friend said he wouldn't date a black girl because of the belief of how mixing races affected each member the lighter and the darker one you hit on a lot of concepts such as colorism and microaggression in a show don't tell kind of way is there anything that inspired this piece that you weren't able to weave into this sort of piecing together of your racial identity so um racism has always been embedded in um, most of my childhood experience and I didn't really notice the impact it had on me until I got older and I experienced it for myself. So certain comments that I would hear, I didn't really know that they were insults or kind of microaggressions. Like, like microaggressions. But then eventually as I got older and it, and I became more aware and politically conscious of what the terms were meant to be or what what the terms were meant to do in regards to I guess, pigmentation, that it kind of affected me to, I guess, affecting me to express my views. A lot of my experiences were me piecing together my experiences as a child and kind of reflecting on its true purpose. So one thing that I kind of took from it or I wish I included more is um, the value, I guess, of self-love, of you embracing what you naturally have, your skin color, um, whether it be your hair texture, whatever it may be, just embracing whatever you have and kind of spreading that positive, I don't know the word, positive vibes to those around you that have similar characteristics. I love that. So you have another line that says, you have to be mixed with something. I'm pretty sure you are. This line makes me so mad. How do you feel about the word exotic and it being used to refer to people of color who may have features that are not attributed to their racial group? So the word exotic, I don't know. I don't think it's a compliment that should be used or even a word that should be used as as a compliment. It's one of those words that kind of you're kind of classifying a person. So you're exotic. So it like is a reasoning behind what they have. So the word exotic, I've heard a couple of times and it will always have to be in reference to my features. So um, you have a pointy nose, you have really wide eyes, like, and then they will always compare it to either some type of European, um, not model, but I guess figure. And so I, the idea of exotic is that you're other than the norms. So kind of classifying you as as an object rather than a person. So so um, think about the term exotic and how we use it in different types of situations or even describing things. So they will describe Mercedes as an exotic car or a type of spice, um, cayenne pepper, an exotic blend or exotic flavor. It's just like another another object. Yeah, exactly. Instead of looking at it or looking at the person for who they are. And then the last question, just to wrap this piece up, is that you entitled your piece Pigmentation, and you said that race is physical appearance. What made you decide to entitle your piece um, Pigmentation? I've uh, wrote a lot of pieces in regards to being described or being compared to as being pretty for a black girl. So I was trying to think outside a box, outside of the box, and think of words that kind of reflect how I failed but not just saying um, without saying just black girl or being so specific so and also I also chose pigmentations because I wanted to kind of 
it be an umbrella kind of term for multiple people of color. So it's not just for African-American women or um, any type of women of color. It can be um, any minority kind of group. So that was like another word for pigmentation. And that can also extend to um, issues of colorism within within com- communities of color. For example, there's so many different shades within the community. So like you said, there was um, yellow, there's dark skin, there's mocha, all these different types of terms that kind of identifies us as women of color. Um, so pigmentation is kind of that term that kind of... Okay, so the term um, pigmentation also embodies the term colorism, which is um, discrimination of people of different shades within a community. So, for example, I guess all these terms such as mocha, caramel, yellow, high yellow are terms that kind of bring down the people within the community because of those that kind of enforced it before them. So the the, the oppressor becomes the oppressed. So the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Beautifully said. Um, and that's the thing that I love most about your piece is how inclusive it is of all different people from all different colored people you know um because this does not i mean when you say it now some people might automatically assume the black the of the black race but it does happen in other groups mm-hmm. um and your piece really just ties that bow on all these concepts um that's not often talked about you know so thank you so much for being here and for sharing this beautiful piece with us um that is so unique being that it's mixed with prose and poetry Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This next story is by an author who's choosing to be anonymous. Really quickly, we just want to remind you guys that if you ever choose to be anonymous on the podcast, you can do so. Even if you don't want to read your story, one of us here at Life Out Loud will read it for you. Anonymous is an author that values cute baby goat videos on the internet and ice cream above everything else. Activist and adventurer, she spends her time defending controversial art and never sleeping unless it's necessary because there's too much in this world to experience. Anonymous refuses to ever stop learning, hurting, loving, feeling, and making the most of this life experience as a form of rebellion against all who try to make it anything other than beautiful. Let's take a listen to the piece entitled Gold. It's summer, and you are in a freezing conference room with 30 mostly male co-workers who are discussing the improvement of motivational issues within the company. You are 16 years old, uncomfortable and unsure as to why you have to be here. All you do is run the cafe, serving crappy croissants to real estate agents who hate their lives almost as much as they hate their wives. They scare you now because you haven't learned to despise them yet. But the irritating men in suits are not the reason you feel so uneasy. They are not why your palms are sweating more than idle hands should sweat, or why you feel like throwing up in the best way possible all over the glossy conference room table your co-workers are seated at. She smiles again and your stomach rolls over. Feeling your face getting hot, you quickly put your hands on your cheeks and place your elbows on the table you're seating at and hang your head to look down at the papers in front of you, pulling your eyebrows together. You fake a deep thought. You attempt to distract yourself by citing the alphabet backwards and in French. You stumble into quickly reciting lyrics to every song on the radio that you can think of, forgetting that a song by her favorite band that no one's heard of has recently become mainstream. 
You remember how she had rolled her eyes, staring at her long eyelashes as she explained to you how she did not appreciate the sudden influx of fake fans suddenly interested in her music. Knowing you cannot last much longer not looking at those eyes when they are in the same roof as you, you practice your normal breathing. Straight breathing, let's call it. You attempt to slow your heart rate that hasn't been the same since she first shook your hand and introduced yourself in February. You prepare your expression to come off as stone-like and neutral as possible, looking at whatever co-worker is speaking the words that your thoughts of her have drowned out. Unwillingly, you force yourself to tune back into them. You ignore the fact that it's just to prove that you can go a second without your thoughts being fully devoted to the girl across the table. The girl with the eyelashes that make you question your entire existence. Knowing that once you look at her, maintaining your composure will demand your full attention. You linger on the person speaking long enough that you can nod at one of their statements in fake understanding, and now every part of keeping up the straight, focused facade is complete. You can now let yourself look at her. Your eyes find her and take her in, stomach rolling over once again. How is she making it do that? Her attention is on the speaker. She's nodding in real understanding with complete devotion to what they have to say. There isn't a single hint in her face indicating that she has to keep up any sort of appearance. After all, she doesn't have to fake straight. She's already proudly out. Unlike you are. This gives her the freedom to be real be herself you wish you could be like that to come to some sort of terms with this attraction you've never felt before towards another girl to be as comfortable with as radiant of a feeling of belonging as she has (sighs) instead your body squashes any possibility of these freedoms by letting your heart rate spike all over again forcing you to look away from her and back down at the papers in front of you to regain composure Shit, you look too long. Clearing your throat and taking a deep breath, you refuse to let this affect you any further. This is stupid. Of course you can tune back into a simple meeting. You ignore the fact that you only stand a chance at doing so because the newest person speaking is seated where you can't glimpse at her and your peripheral vision. You sit up straight and look up, ready to fully immerse yourself into the important discussion at hand. And right as you do so... Oh. Oh, everyone's getting up. The meeting is brought to a close. They all chat casually with one another, the way co-workers do as they gather their things. Hey, how's your boyfriend doing? A random co-worker on my left asks with a polite smile, unknowingly snapping me out of my gay trance. The intense, familiar guilt that happens any time a thought of him interrupts thoughts of her settles into your stomach, chasing away the butterfly-like rolling motions caused by her and replacing them instead with a horrifying churning, reminding you of the piece of shit that you are. Reminding you that your fake straightness comes with real consequences. You haven't even thought about him. The one who stays up all night with you when you have a nightmare. The one who knows how you like your coffee. The one who once stopped you when you were walking down the street, covered your eyes and said, don't look, and later told you he had moved a snail off the sidewalk for you because he knew you were terrified of them. You haven't thought about the boy who loves you all morning because a girl has you enthralled. I'm fine, you tell them too enthusiastically without thinking, realizing you've made a mistake they hadn't asked about you. You nervously laugh, correct yourself, say goodbye, and leave as quickly as possible. As you all but sprint back to the cafe with the crappy croissants, your mind automatically goes back to work trying to figure out your sexuality for what feels like the 900th time. You love your boyfriend! 
You love the perplexed but supportive smile he gives you when you don't make sense. You love the way he drums his fingers on your thigh to the beat of whatever song is playing that he's just discovered and is excited for you to listen to as well. You love the way those same fingers feel in your hair, on your neck, the way they sometimes slip under your shirt when you kiss. You love how he feels in every way. So much so that sometimes when it's a slow afternoon in the cafe with the crappy croissants, you find your mind drifting off to think of just how good he feels. Yet somehow, she still finds her way back into your thoughts. You can't focus on anything except how good she might feel. Here even, right in the cafe with the crappy croissants. You take a deep breath and clear your throat, <clears throat> shaking your head, hopefully shaking these thoughts loose in the process. It's summer, a year prior. You're 15 and scratching the skin under the itchy shoulder strap of your big poofy ball gown, doing the math in your head to know when exactly you can take it off. It's 9 p.m. right now. Um, oh, no. Okay, it's 4 p.m. right now. 4.15 if I'm lucky. This ceremony should only be an hour, and it's an hour and a half break between this and the party. We rented the venue until 1. Um, it's an hour trip back home. Shit, we have to drop off some of my friends. Okay, Joey lives off of Sage Street. Ashley moves, so she's close to Jackson Town. The short, bald priest of your family's evangelical church with a permanently condescending look on his face interrupts your calculations, picking up his microphone and greeting almost 60 of your family and friends. He thanks them for coming to this important occasion in your life, your quinceanera, becoming a woman, taking responsibility for yourself and your actions, the celebration of growing up. You sigh and reposition yourself in your itchy ball gown. The priest reminds them why they are here in this cramped church before your party, decorated to excess in blue and gold, overflowing with flowers that smell too strongly, all prepared by 10 of your mother's friends this morning. We're here to thank God for your life and ask him to bless you for the remainder of your years, to give you strength to follow his commandments and live a life dedicated to him. Primarily, he focuses on the strength to abstain from desires of the flesh that will surely damn you if succumbed to. In fact, you're here to receive your chastity ring, promising abstinence to God to focus on him and his ways without the distraction of sex. You've got to be clean and pure until marriage, to leave yourself, apparently, for only your future husband to soil. You shiver. The pastor is going on about the importance of this decision you have decided to make. Your friends are seated at the front row trying to make you laugh while the pastor discusses the corruption of girls your age. Pregnant, unmarried, opening their legs for anyone these days. But how you will be different. Because you have strength given by God. He calls your parents up and then you. He begins to pray over you. This doesn't necessarily feel right and you aren't sure why. This is how you were raised your entire life. You have not once questioned it before. Why now? The pastor holds out the chastity ring on a small embroidered purple pillow. You were to take it and put it on yourself to signify that this is your conscious decision as an adult not one you have been forced into. You take the cold ring gingerly and place it on your ring finger. It's gold with diamonds that are almost too shiny. It's the prettiest and most expensive thing you've ever owned. You are somehow grateful for this opportunity to accept years of sexual repression while lying in wait of a mystery dream man that is not guaranteed to exist. You are somehow grateful for the shame and guilt you will feel should you so much as 
think of straying from this path to which you have agreed. You smile at your parents, at your priest, and turn around to give your friends double peace signs. They cheer, and the rest of the audience laughs and soon claps. Proud of you. Accepting of you. You scratch under your shoulder strap again, uncomfortable in this dress. It's winter, and the random naked boy on the bed behind you is quietly falling asleep. You're 19 now, and somehow reflective in the strange room that holds no memories of yours. This is not how you expected the breaking of your vow to feel. You feel good. Maybe a little tired after the past two hours, but for a sinful fornicator destined for damnation, you feel pretty great. You retrieve a cigarette from the purse off the floor and light it. You've accepted that sometimes you like girls with eyelashes. Really like girls with eyelashes. Like the girl from two nights ago who studied theology at NYU and wore red lipstick that was almost too pretty to ruin. That's right theology. You smile a little at just how inescapable your religion really is. Though no one quite compares to the co-worker you once had, who you've since learned has moved in with her girlfriend, who's working a different, less crappy job, and is thriving and more radiant than ever. You try not to think about her anymore, but you've also accepted that you really like boys with strong fingers like the random boy behind you, whose hands have certainly done a number on your thighs. You aren't with the boyfriend who moved the snail out of your way anymore. Through no one's fault, really, you found. Nowadays, with the shaking hand and a string of curses at your lips, you move your own snails. You look down at your thighs and smile, taking a pull from the little piece of rebellion between your fingers. You've even accepted that you don't just like boys, nor girls, but people. Beautiful, funny, real people who sometimes don't identify as boys, nor girls, nor neither, nor both. That they exist, and are fun to kiss, and get ice cream with. And you've replaced the gold ring that adorned your hand and your conscience for four years with the cheap gold one. Almost vaginal in its open appearance with negative space in the middle that the skin on your fingers appears through. This ring celebrates you, your body, and your control over your body. Content sums these feelings up the most. Content from having learned to do and feel what you want to do and feel without unnecessary boundaries. Boundaries set by a world that fears sexuality almost as much as it secretly loves it. Boundaries you've only just learned to escape after years of nights of guilty tears for feeling things that are completely natural. Boundaries enforced by real estate agents who like crappy croissants and priests who insist on itchy ball gowns. You are content with you most of the time. You now know that the expression of your many layers of sexuality, so long as it is safe, is healthy and powerful. But sometimes you look around the world and realize it needs work to accept people like you. You notice those who whisper and stare as you hold hands with a person that doesn't look like a cisgender man when you appear to be a cisgender woman. You try to ignore them when they sometimes vocalize how wrong they think this hand-holding is. When people in power vocalize how wrong they think this hand-holding is. When the happiness of people like you is a punishable offense in the wrong places late at night. When the happiness of people like you is met with laws to limit the most natural of human feeling, love. You are not quite free from the gold yet. but. You're closer.
Wow. The story from Anonymous is absolutely amazing. It's one of my favorite stories I've heard on Life Out Loud. Unfortunately, Anonymous cannot be here today for an interview, but thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That concludes our 10th and last episode of the season, Piecing It Together. We are also excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. We like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone here behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night! Oh, good night.